Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sound Art. I'm your host, Darren Copeland, and on today's show we have my conversation with Jessica Thompson. She's a Canadian media artist working in sound, performance, and mobile technologies. Nasa is presenting an adapted version of her project, Borderline, which maps sound data onto economic and social data. Borderline is available as an app uh, that's uh, downloadable for mobile iOS devices, and it can be applied to any city, town, or village, wherever you happen to be. Borderline is also the basis for an exhibition at NASA, which includes an analog style of map making that those living in the vicinity of NASA can explore. Our conversation also touches on how sound and noise data help to reveal the character and dynamics of different communities. It's very actually hard to place your work in terms of labels, definitions, genres. Uh, I mean, and also the, you know, there's a kind of a ambiguity between art and social science. <laughs> um, how do you, uh, where do you place the work that you do? And, and is that, you know, even the definition changed over time as you do more projects? It depends on um, which project we're talking about. I think I think in terms of my practice overall, um, I still probably align most closely with mobile sound. Um, and because, you know, I've historically made uh, mobile and wearable devices that people use to change their sonic perception in cities or to add to the sonic composition of the city. Um, so it, it, the early work falls in there and a lot of my work still sits there. Um, I think with borderline, you know, it is something different. It's it's something that very much um, lines up with critical geography. Critical geographies, um, in some cases, uh, black and brown geographies, because you can't look at a city without thinking about black and brown geographies and how space, um, how who you are affects the space that you have access to. Um, I think that, you know, it, it started as a way of doing sound mapping differently so to me it still very much sits in the realm of sound studies but certainly um you know it, it's my work always is connected um around place even when you're borrowing a device and you're you're making sound in a space and perhaps this device has been shown in many locations i think that um it really is about the body and space um and so um, it's around space, it's around site. Um, so we don't really talk about locative media at the moment, but it, it lines up within locative media as well. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's something that, you know, sound itself doesn't stick with one, one medium. Um, so uh, to me, I'm not really bothered by the fact that it, it ends up in different categories. To me, that's a strength. Um, it does make it really hard to explain to others because everyone does bring their own interests to it. Um, and I think with borderline, especially, um, you know, there are critical geographers who really are not that interested in the fact that you can tag sounds and play them back into the environment that you recorded them. They're really excited to have this accessible map making tool where you can create your own maps and put them in dialogues with other maps easily. Uh, with with sound folks, they're mainly interested in the sonic element and the sound mapping element. And they're less interested in, you know, putting their sound in dialogue with uneven geographies and cities. So it is it is a project that 
has multiple dimensions. Um, and, and yeah, certainly I've, I've heard that before of, you know, is this social science, is it geography, is it sound studies? And is that a, um, is that for you, do you see all those things uh, talking to each other and informing what you're trying to make or are you, um, is there a kind of conflict of serving multiple masters or? No, no. Um, I think that, you know, there's been lots of, of movements and trajectories in the history of music and art, et cetera. Um, and, you know, every once in a while, we sort of shift back and forth to being sort of having singularity in the multiplicity. So if we think about, you know, I don't know, Fluxus in the 60s, that was an intermediate movement. Um, we had lots of people doing different things. Um, so I, I don't, I don't really, I think it, it's challenging when you're trying to explain it to folks who are used to sort of categorizing things cleanly. Um, but to me, it's not a problem that that it works in more than one way. Um, again, I think that, you know, it's the way that we make art is is changing. And I think that, you know, we we should always be questioning existing forms and seeing if they're still serving us. So um, I, I think that being able to think about sound as an expanded relational medium is really important right? Because sound comes from somewhere. So um, really by looking in the social dimensions of sound, um, to me, it's a really exciting area. I mean, there's lots of scholars who are doing this. Um, Alison Martin is the one who comes to mind first, um, who did, um, you know, writing and multimedia projects around the disappearance of go-go music uh, in her neighborhood. Um, and there's lots of things around how sound is used to wield power. And so I think that um, it's exciting to be in an area where there's so many potentials, uh, so much potential in so many different directions. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is how I work. I'm always, I'm, I'm an artist who works in multiple, multiple forms of media. Uh, concurrently, and that that's very much who I am and who what I've done since I started. So, um, so yeah, and I, I, it doesn't it doesn't bother me very much. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> say. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, there seems to be a very strong participatory element as far as the public's uh, engagement with your experience of your work, um, and um, you mentioned earlier about you know body and place and those being primary elements to it um so is is um where does that where did that come um uh where, how did that arise for you the, the 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 those key parts is there is there a part of your experience as a person that that drew you to that that focal point yeah i think it came from the work itself i think that um you know, the, I think there is a performative element to it, but it's more of a collaborative performance or um, a way that people can use the work individually. Um, my work very much spans from my own curiosity. So often I am thinking about making these works myself to kind of um, maybe fulfill my own need <laughs> or th something that I'm curious about. 
And, and so being able to um, have others try the work, I think is pretty unique. I think that the idea of loaning something and then sending people off into public with your art is very, <laughs> can be very unnerving uh, to some. Um, I think that, you know, the idea of, um, I have never been the type of performer where I do something interesting and you get to watch me do something interesting. That's not who I am. Um, and so I think that having these experiences that we can do together or individually um, is really important. And, and really because so many of my works involve thinking about how we perceive sound, thinking about how we make sound individually, um, it makes sense to actually let folks do that on their own if they want, if they're so interested. And that means that not everyone will try my work. Like that is, that's that's the thing is that, you know, this <laughs> this work doesn't lend itself to like YouTube. Um, and it's hard to tell what people are doing in my documentation because it's very individual. Um, but I think that, again, this is the type of work that I think is important to make. And I, I've had the freedom to make it. Um, and this is what comes, this is what happens when you, when you're an artist who's always had a day job, right? And you've, you've done your work on top of, you know, having, um, on top of doing 40 hours a week, like you, I always felt, I felt very strongly um, from uh, really early in my career that, you know, they were my ideas. I was paying for it. So I'm going to make the work that I want to make. And how is the work experience uh, influence the kind of decisions you made in your in your projects. So I've had lots of day jobs. I've done everything from working in administration uh, at schools. I've worked in the gallery system. I've taught little kids art. That is the best job. Um, and I also worked for seven years as a project manager for uh, a marketing agency that had a lot of clients in the tech sector. Um, you know, in a way. Um, it's made me a very good project manager um, because, uh, you know, you when you organize other people or you organize other processes, you get really good at organizing your own. Um, it did enable me to, to, in some cases, be able to do more ambitious work. Um, I didn't have to worry about selling what I was doing. Um, and so I was able to do work that was more exploratory. Um, I didn't have as many hours though I think that my output has been not as fast as maybe someone who has all day, every day to do their work. But for those people, those people have, you know, that's a great privilege. Not everyone can do that. Actually, most artists can't. Um, we have to earn a living. Um, and with me, you know, had to feed myself. So um, it was something where um, the work happened when it happened. And in retrospect, I, I do wish I would have been, you know, I remember when I was coming up um, in the Toronto art scene in the late nineties and early two thousands, there was a lot of shade thrown around like, you know, working full time. And I often wouldn't tell folks I was working full time because there was this idea that, you know, we all should be working on our work. But the reality is, is those people who were able to spend most of their time on their practice, like there was someone else who was able to pay for it, or maybe they were coming from a position where they didn't have to worry about working as much. Um, so I think that, um, in retrospect, if I could talk to my younger self, I would have basically told myself that I was doing just fine and, uh, that the work would happen when it happened. Um, 
as an educator, so I've been a professor here at the University of Waterloo for a decade, and I found it, it's uh, interesting because your practice is still slow because uh, this job is the easiest job in the world and the hardest job in the world all at once. Um, and what I found though, is that I've been able to uh, get grants to hire students. So to get support for my work, which is again, a great privilege. I'm really grateful that I've been able to secure funding, but also I've been able to hire students and uh, I consider this a big part of my job. So it's one of the things, it's one thing to get, um, you know, grants to support your own projects. But I think that, you know, many times the conditions by which we receive funding is that, you know, you are expected to hire students and actually to um, help students actually get a sense of what your work is like, to help train students in whatever you're doing, etc. And that's been really joyful. So I have an army of awesome research assistants um, who help me with mapping, um, mapping, leading sound walks, doing speculative design workshops, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I've learned that having, having students help you, um, it doesn't make things faster necessarily. And there's times where it makes things slower because people are learning and also, um, you know, artists are really bad at getting the things out of their head and being able to direct others, but it's been truly joyful. And I noticed that especially during the pandemic, um, being able to meet virtually with the students who were working as part of my project was really rewarding. And also it's really joyful when they actually can take the work that they did with me and use it to propel them into co-op positions, internships, in some cases, really cool jobs, etc. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something where I think that, you know, when you are an educator, when you're a faculty member, your job is, is teaching and research and then also service, which is administrative things. And, you know, you don't get much time either, but um, it does give us this opportunity to really involve others in what we do. And it's really, really joyful. Hmm. That's uh, interesting because um, one always still thinks of uh, artists, even though they're at a university, that they're still working in isolation. But that that's uh, interesting to point out that and that uh, collaborative aspect in the, in the wider community involvement, because there is a community behind you yeah. when you're at a university. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There, I mean, my colleagues in fine arts still still do. It depends on what you're up to, I think. Um, in art and tech, like uh, often, you know, it's it's funny because in engineering and computer science, armies of you know, folks come to do their PhD in your research area, and their job is to help you with your work. Whereas, um, in in fine arts and media arts, like everyone's expected to like just make their own work. Um, so it's it's an interesting model. It kind of bridges, I guess, art and science. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the, the art, a lot of the creative decisions I still make myself. Um, and it's something where it is a different working process to be doing what you're doing and also thinking, okay, I should get someone to help me with this. And it's something where I always need to stop myself because my tendency is to do everything myself um, because you know, that's how I was trained too. Um, but yeah, to actually, you know, delegate and also, um, teach people too. So not all my students know how to do 
what they do when they come in, but I believe in hiring really good people and training them. And so uh, you want to leave time for training and mentorship as well. I wanted to get back again to the body in place aspect, because I think every time you present your work, it's a different body, different public. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, your work has been presented all around the world. So there's different uh, social issues in every place that you, you know, uh, the place is different. The body is different. How Mm -hmm. do you, um, but yet it may be the same work in multiple uh, locations and how do you um, how does the work adapt to those circumstances uh, with my work it tends to shift context in whatever location it it's in um, I think particularly of this piece that I did which was uh, originally a workshop and then I ended up sort of creating it as um, an artistic piece that is also a workshop and it's called uh, freestyle, no, what is it? It is Bike Hack and Sound Ride, not Freestyle Sound Hack, mixing up my works. Um, so Bike Hack and Sound Ride is basically you you attach a contact mic to a playing card and stick it in your wheels and attach an amp and you just become really, really loud when you're, when you're biking. And it's a really amazing sonic experience because you're riding with people and the sound is ebbing and flowing depending on where you are and where your fellow riders are. And so with with that piece, um, the context can shift. So for example, uh, years ago when I showed it in Calgary, um, at the time their critical mass ride actually was taking over the highway, (laughs) like the highway highway, four lanes of traffic highway, and and the bikes would actually take over the highway. It It was crazy. Um, it was really fun, but also like, wow, <laughs> it was, you know, you had this, this traffic building up behind you and people starting to honk, et cetera. Um, so people were very interested in it as a way of um, advocacy. And that was something that was had a lot of legibility within that community. And even folks in Calgary kind of knew what it was. So people didn't get, a few people honked, but I just, people didn't get nearly as angry as I thought they were going to get. Um, I showed the same piece in Sibiu, which is in the middle of Romania, uh, and I was invited to be part of a residency, uh, and I decided to do it there, and I had asked to borrow a bike from the organizers, and they got me this bike, and it was so funny because I was riding around this, you know, Romanian city, and people were literally stopping their cars to laugh at me because I was riding a bike. Because in that city, you didn't ride a bike unless you didn't have a car. And, and so and so the cyclists who showed up to do the sound ride, they were decked out in cycling gear. Oh, my God. They were just like completely. They had the bike shorts that, had, that were padded and they had this whole thing going on because they were just very hardcore cyclists. Uh, and they were very suspicious about doing this project, uh, but they did it. And then afterwards, uh, one was talking about how he felt like it was a way of act, a mode of activism for them personally, because it wasn't a cycling friendly city at all. Um, I think that, you know, the, the work shifts according to the place and uh, the socio-political environment that you're in, and also the bodies using, using the devices. Um, not all bodies have the same access in cities. Um, so, um, and as we've seen over the past few years, when we think about the violence that's been still happening against black folks for being 
black in the wrong place. Um, I think that it is, uh, it depends very much on the positionality of the person using your work. And there's been some really great, um, Jennifer Stover did a series on her blog about, um, it was called Sound Walking While POC. Um, and she actually invited um, folks of color to talk about their experience of sound and space and how um, our understanding of sound or the perception of sound changes depending on the body making that sound and how our traditional ideas of sound and silence are really, um, really are embedded in, in systems of white supremacy. Like it, it's about this idea of what is noise and what isn't is something that can have a different tone and tenor depending on who you are and where you are. Is that, um, is there also a question of safety um, or um, a belonging uh, in a sound walk context or in a public walk context that's different um, that way? You mean that's different if you if you have a bunch of people of color versus not? Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely depends on where you are. Um, so you know, it, it's something where um, I, many of the things that we think of as neutral are not neutral at all. And so, yeah, no. If you if you're leading a sound walk um, of you know, sort of uh, an art community in a city, and it's something where you have a little bit of diversity but not a lot. Um, you can go into way more places than if you are leading the same sound walk uh, with folks of color. It depends entirely on, on the city. So there are spaces that are racist and dangerous, right? Um, and this, this freedom of movement and mobility is really tied up with these systems of privilege. So this is what I mean when I'm talking about the intersections between, you know, sound place, body, and the socio-political dimension of sound. Like, it, it's something where we we really have been programming for a mainly white audience for too long, to be honest. Um, and I say this as someone who you mean um, we as in the galleries or uh, we as in the Canadian art community. Like mm -hmm. it's something where we have notable exceptions and excellent work going on. Like, and we have some amazing work uh, from all sorts of people, um, some really amazing work from folks of color. Um, but it, it's something where we, we, we make certain assumptions based on access without necessarily thinking about that all spaces are not equal for all people and that not everyone feels like they belong in all spaces. As artists, you know, we we are able to traverse spaces that we would never be invited into otherwise, right? So I'm sure that those who are listening probably have had an experience of being at an opening or maybe your show, etc., and you are being celebrated or you're in a beautiful space, etc., that you know, you may not necessarily be in otherwise. And because we are artists, we kind of get this um, this uh, get out of jail free card or a privilege card that we get to exercise. Um, but yeah, no, I think that thinking about intersecting identities is as, as important as thinking about access, you know. 
um, with our sound walks, um, we really should make notes around accessibility um, because you may have someone who wants to join your sound walk, but they have mobility issues or they're in a wheelchair or a scooter or they can't walk on even train, right? And so this, this ableism that also ties in with this is, is a problem. And it's just um, something that we can do, all do better. Um, and I think that um, I'm trying to do it in my work and lots of others are too. And how is it that, that you address that? With my work? Um, I have, I include accessibility information in the sound walking. I think really carefully around roots. Um, I talk a lot about space and place. And, and I think that by integrating in, if you're gonna have a site specific sound walk, then actually talking about the site that you're in is important, right? And so doing that research in terms of um, which location are we in? Who does a space quote unquote belong to? Um, who might feel comfortable in the space? Who might not feel comfortable in the space? Um, I think that's those are important considerations that I make. Um, and I think that um, beyond that, I think that trying to sort of not make assumptions around neutrality, um, especially when we're thinking about wearable pieces as well. Um, and then also just other things too. A lot of the work I do um, because I am Black Canadian, we've been here um, since just before and then around in and around the Civil War, my family uh, settled south of Chatham-Kent. Um, for me, a lot of the equity work that I do within the institution um, ties into that as well. So, um, you know, I have, I think uh, with, with the two exceptions, I, I've tried to have an all BIPOC crew in terms of my students. Um, because honestly, students of color are not invited to work on professors' projects as often as their white counterparts. Um, I do a lot of advocating uh, for professors of color here at Waterloo. Um, so a lot of my equity work actually happens within institutions. Um, it doesn't necessarily, because, and with my, with my practice, it relates in terms of the content and context, but um, I believe in doing the work where it needs to happen. And so because I happen to have this job at an institution, um, I can I can leverage that privilege I have to make it easier for others to come up. The students that are working with you, like on this borderline project, um, mm -hmm. what kind of um, uh, academic um, backgrounds are they? Do they have? Are they all art students? Or are they are they from sciences or? I, I have a mix. Um, I'm a big believer in interdisciplinary teams. Um, I think we learn a lot when we get to come from different ends. So um, right now, my students, uh, Kyle is from Syst uh, Computer Systems. He's at McMaster University. Kevin is doing his PhD in planning. Kashape is a fourth year um, geography student. Deborah is going into her fourth year in fine arts. Testimony is going into her fourth year in health sciences. Um, so everyone kind of um, comes from their own direction. And because the project involves so many different things from so many different fields, um, 
I think for me, having an interdisciplinary team totally makes sense. Um, this doesn't make sense for everyone. I think that, you know, it depends on the work that you're, you're doing. Um, but yeah, the type of tasks they do, they do a whole lot of mapping and wrestling with census data, to be honest, um, to be able to generate those borderlines that you see on the app, um, these sort of areas of great difference and contrast in terms of like what right now our borderlines are showing um, after tax income. So the uh, difference between the after tax income of one group versus another to generate those takes a lot of work and a lot of it is very boring <laughs> wrestling around with data. Um, they make maps, um, Kyle and then uh, Nihal Kanetar, who was actually my first RA and is still involved with the project. They did the back end of the, the app I designed. Um, another former RA trained all the neural nets. Um, and yeah, so the, the task kind of depends on what is going on with the work. Um, though the thing that has taken the most time is, is the mapping. I was very, very surprised and still am how long making good maps, making accurate maps, making maps that show their metadata, uh, what data sets you used, et cetera, um, how long that takes. Perhaps we should back up a bit and explain borderline and <laughs> the uh, <laughs> and um, how like uh, so it's a it's an app but it also uses maps and it's and it's a different form different data but then there's also a sound component maybe you can just sort of yeah break so down the different elements for me maybe yeah so uh, what it is is it is um, a series of maps an app and then um, some activities uh, that are done in collaboration with the public. So um, what it is at its heart is it's a tool uh, that helps you, uh, that helps you use sound to create new ways of understanding place by letting you tag sound in the environment that you're in um, and then export that data so that you can put your sonic data in dialogue with other data. So um, it really started because I wanted um, a more nuanced way of doing sound mapping. Um, so, you know, if you're creating a sound map, you might listen in an environment, you might make notes around amplitude, direction, um, maybe the color of the sound, um, the tenor, the texture, all those things. But it really is just a specific moment in time and a specific place. Um, and it really is how you categorize those sounds really depends on you as the map maker. And so when I first started thinking about this, um, cities were starting to have, um, you know, just microphones kind of in public space to measure relative amplitude levels. You'll see this when cities are looking at checking in or revising their noise ordinances. So they'll often, you know, measure the relative amplitude of sound in the neighborhood at different times and then figure out whether they need to make adjustments to zoning or, um, you know, create bylaws, etc. Um, so um, I was thinking about that and I was thinking that, you know, about the challenge of sound is that sound is very social and our perception of sound changes depending on who you are and where you are. So what I wanted to do was create a way of, you know, marking sounds you were listening to and then being able to put your 
your sound that you were listening to or what you noted in dialogue with like noise complaints or construction or demographics. Um, and, and there weren't any apps that could do that the way I wanted to. I'd assume when I started that you could just do it with Google or you could drop pins, but you know, in Google, my maps is pretty good, but you're dropping pins and then you, it's, it's awkward. Um, and I wanted people, what I wanted to be able to do is actually to enable people to like tag sound and then kind of create, to create a database of, of sound in the city. So to do that, um, I integrated neural networks, which can identify sound. Um, it uses five second samples of sound, but really they can identify sound in like two seconds. And so when you use this app, you march around and you, you'll hit a button and it will take a five second sample. And then it will tell you the sound that it thinks it is. Um, they can make notable and hilarious mistakes. Um, and then you can also add notes. Um, you can correct them and then you save them. And then you just can export your sound just as a CSV file, which is uh, comma separated values. So an open form of data that can be brought into like Google Maps or ArcGIS, Mapbox Studio, whatever you're mapping. And also um, it's the format that a lot of our open data is in. So you can actually then bring the sonic data and start looking at other data that's in your city. So it enables us to map sound in a way that's maybe more nuanced and to take into account the things that make the sounds, the conditions which affect how we perceive the sounds, um, et cetera. So it's an app, it's a critical map making project. And then these workshops that I lead are, are very much traditional sound walks, but what we do is we walk with the app and we we tag sound with the app and then we, um, we set all the sound. So when you tag this sound with the app, you can set it to play back in the location where it was captured. So um, you can then turn on all your sounds. And if you're with a group, you can actually then move back through the city playing the sound that you, you all tagged, which is pretty fun. Um, so it's a way of uh, collective noise making um, and it can feel really musical and beautiful at times. Um, when I did a presentation of this project in Port Hope, Ontario, we happened to be finishing our sound walk just as, um, as the bell in City Hall was ringing. And so we ended up making this amazing composition just of bells because everyone, everyone, man, it, it rang for so long because it was almost noon. So you have 12 good gongs. Um, so everyone managed to get a bit of it. And then we just created this sort of collective performance with these bells again, which was really enjoyable. Because what, what will happen is the, you're using your mobile phone and then you're, it's recording that a snippet of that bell sound. Yes. And then it's like looping that back, playing that back. It is, yeah. So then you're in the walk, you're hearing it among everyone's phone on the walk, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty enjoyable. I think that... Um, when you and I were walking, um, when I visited NASA a few weeks ago and visited you up there, um, we went for a walk and you know I was noting that the neural networks were very good at identifying crickets, which is good. Um, so <laughs> I keep on thinking that we should make a cricket opera or something based on the sounds we tagged. Right. <laughs> um, well, with it being South River, what are 
you know, and this our the region around Nasa, uh, you know, Highlands, it's a more, it's a not an eth- it's ethnically more uniform and economically, uh, um, maybe not as wide ranging as you might find in a city. And so, what are those challenges since the project was developed? You know, to uh, point out these um, uh, more. Uh, pronounced differences in cities which are maybe not as common in the rural areas well yeah the homogeneity is pretty noticeable um it's interesting i mean it is a place is always a place and so i think that um the thing i found interesting when i was looking at the data for south river is that you know you you have very few renters and, and Seth River has two um, dissemination areas in it. And disseminate for those that aren't familiar, dissemination areas are the smallest unit of geography that you can get uh, from census data uh, where they can that can tell you about the inhabitants of a place without like compromising people's privacy. Um, so um, what was interesting with Seth River is seeing this um, distribution of, of renters versus owners. Um, and also kind of learning more about uh, the local qualities of the space. So the street where NASA is located used to be the main highway, which brings you right through the middle of town. And uh, now the main highway is outside the city and that's affected, um, you know, business um, and the local economy. And uh, when we were talking, you were saying that, you know, maybe that's why you have more renters in the space. Um, So, you know, it's something where um, it's, it is what it is, um, but there's always kind of a story to tell around the sonic environment. Um, And the project works equally well in rural environments. I mean, it's, it's pretty, uh, good at picking up birds. Of course, you have traffic wherever you are, so it's always getting traffic and motorcycles and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's something that um, these sounds sit in contrast with other places. If you go north to North Bay, which is like you know an hour and a half north of you, um, there's some pretty big borderlines around the south end of that of that city, um, which is really interesting. Um, and you know, having looked at the maps, I have questions, but. Um, I think that it's something where we should always talk about um, we should always talk about access in place um, because I think that also too again you know um, we're not aware of privilege we have until it's pointed out to us or until we start to think of other folks who may not have that privilege and so it's important dialogue to have regardless of who's in your audience. I think though the other interesting aspect of South River uh, is that it the uh, the normal household income is below the Canadian average. Yeah. Even though it's more uniformly, you know, European Anglo-Saxon descent, mm-hmm. um, so it doesn't fit the uh, paradigm of privilege exactly. Um, yeah. It's... And then, but some of the outlying areas around it would. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And also privilege comes in multiple forms. Like so. So there is privilege that happens um, because of whiteness. There's privilege that comes from money. (laughs) There's privilege that comes from mobility. So, yeah, no, um, you you may very well see that, you know, the the 
areas around you might be way wealthier. So it, it's things, things kind of like it, it's, you don't have to have one to have the other. I think that in larger cities, you will often see lower income with folks of color. In the US, it's blatantly obvious um, because many cities were designed that way or altered to fit that, but in Canada too, like, uh, and there's, there's also other differences that emerge. Like, you know, if you look at things like transit times, if you live in downtown Toronto, you have really short transit times, you're able to access different modes of transportation, you get out towards Scarborough and it's just, you know, fewer buses, not frequent buses. And then you look at the same map of where black and brown folks are and it's pretty clear. Um, who has the access to the best transit, the most frequent transit. But I think that, you know, it, it's interesting because having this, I, we've seen that too, you know, having smaller communities, especially those that are in rural areas, that you have this downtown core that has lower incomes than the surrounding areas. Um, so you'll have like larger properties or, um, and you're surrounded by cottage country too, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does the aspect of sound and economic data play into each other with the app? Like when, when I'm capturing a sound, how is that informing the economic data that comes back at me on the app? You have to. So if you put that data in dialogue, so you can, it depends on how you decide to use the app. Like, so for example, um, if you decide you're going to use the app to, I don't know, um, capture all the transport trucks that go through that main strip. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to measure it and sort of see how often it's happening. What you could do is look at that and look at your area and compare that to maybe another city or another community that has a similar area and see like, I think the thing that you can do is you can sort of start to think about like why do you have all these tractor trailers coming down the main strip of South River when the highway is parallel to it. So it's something where it depends largely on the sound that you capture. Um, I think that maybe an example that I could uh, share that might help is um, I did a project uh, in 2021 where we mapped sound like noise complaints in New York City, um, because unlike Canada, where you can't really—I mean, we it, we know where the noise complaints happen. The police know, but um, in order to protect people's privacy, they will not make this data public. Uh, the best we can see is the noise complaints per like neighborhood, or not even dissemination area uh, census tract. Um, so dissemination areas, you have a couple, then make up a census tract, and then also uh, just to—I forgot to say earlier, so small a dissemination area is kind of the size of a small neighborhood most neighborhoods have two though some will have like three um, or four um so yeah in new york city um americans are very new york public data or uh the new york city 311 data is a treasure trove of data around noise complaints um and so what i did was uh there was a geographer named ben wellington who sort of did a bunch of maps that appeared in the New Yorker showing like area maps, just showing which neighborhoods were loudest and quietest according to these noise complaints. 
Um, and I decided to actually see if I could find the actual locations of noise complaints, which is really interesting because in Canada, if we have exact latitude and longitude, it'll point out like your house. In New York, because it's so dense, like you can have like four apartment buildings with that set of coordinates. So what I was doing was uh, we were mapping, um, mapping noise complaints. Um, one of my former RAs who's really good at analyzing data did something called a cluster analysis, which basically um, took, took all the noise complaints, which looked like clumps when I was mapping them and actually um, made it really clear. And it kind of verified what I had guessed, which is that um, most of the noise complaints in New York City during 2019, we used 2019 because it was like our last normal year at the time. So um, most of the noise complaints were happening um, north of Harlem um, in mainly black and Latino neighborhoods. And then right in the middle of downtown Brooklyn, mainly African-American neighborhoods. And what I did was I compared um, their census data. So their census was like 2014 and 2019. Um, and in all those neighborhoods, you could see that the neighborhoods were getting wealthier and whiter. And so the noise complaints were um, of loud music or parties as a category, right? And so what it seemed like to me, looking at this data and all the things that we pulled was that you know, as these neighborhoods were coming, becoming wealthier and whiter, we were seeing more noise complaints. So people were, you know, call, it appeared like people were calling the police, calling in noise complaints around their neighbors. And the thing is, is if you've always been in a neighborhood and noise is the culture, you're not calling based on neighbors you know, you're calling based on neighbors you don't know. And then about a year later, there was this big piece in the Atlantic um, that was um, talking about um, this woman's experience of being from Brooklyn, growing up in Brooklyn, you know, moving into a new apartment building, hanging out with her girlfriends, and then having a neighbor shush her and, and thinking about, you know, where is it okay to be ourselves in terms of space? So it, it's very interesting. Like we, we use sound and noise as a way of controlling others as well. So I think that um, it can be really rich um, and it, it really is individual. I mean, people use the app for all sorts of reasons. So uh, there's definitely a connection um, between noise and noise making um, and these other elements. It seems like you could also, uh, maybe you've done this in another project, is, adapt, is also mapping uh, decibel uh, readings for you know just different areas in, in relation to uh, the uh, economic uh, uh, position, if you will, of, of that location? You know, I haven't, but that's an interesting idea. I think that also, too, that you'd need to know the source because, you know, it, it's interesting. Like, um, my friend actually lived in, <laughs> my friend lived along one of the borderlines. I actually was calling her, talking to her one day about something completely different. And I was talking about the project and I'm like, oh yeah, do you live near this? Do you know where this park is? And she's said it was basically beside her house. And I was like, okay, I found this big borderline. What's up with this? And she said that basically, um, it's a lot of pre-war apartments with like, um, window air conditioners. And so, New Yorkers kind of live their life in public anyways, but what happens is um, the the sidewalk around the park is really wide. 
And so folks come out of these apartments, which are like sweltering in the summer, and they have barbecues on the sidewalk. And, you know, in, in Black culture, a barbecue is an event, and it's going to be noisy. And, and so it's, 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 um, it's something that is, um, it's just really interesting. Um, so yeah, in terms of, of decibel level, sure, but it depends on what the decibel level is. Is it construction? In which case, yeah, you might want to actually look at, you know, the decibel level um, in your neighborhood and put that in dialogue with who's there because we know from other uh, research that, you know, um, folks of color tend to live in the, in the louder, noisier parts of cities, closer to highways. Um, there's been a lot of research also relatedly in terms of just access to shade and heat. So again, this is more apparent in the US, but it's like, yeah, no, like neighborhoods without trees, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that would be one way of um, determining between populated areas and rural areas as well mm -hmm. as the, uh, uh, would be on a decibel scale um, and, and then attaching that to uh, economic value of homes or yeah, and it, it's it's interesting, too, because for the past few years, um, Realtor.ca um, has included, like, sound indicators on home listings. So, um, you know, in addition to people wanting, like, walk scores also do this. You know, people want, like, these higher walk scores. Um, and there's, there's a difference in home values um, if you live in a place that has a higher walk score. But in terms of um, sound, like neighborhoods that are quote unquote quiet um, tend to be more expensive. And also like things like tree canopies, like um, so if you're in a shadier neighborhood, chances are your home is worth more too. Yeah, that's interesting. Cool, well, I guess we should conclude, but uh, um, I, I guess maybe just in, 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 uh, uh, maybe and just to wrap up is uh, is are there um uh are there ways that you see with this project being transplanted to a rural context how what special challenges do you see and and uh and, and types of data or insights that, that that um that you may not get from our urban context wow what what a way to end um <laughs> yeah uh I don't, you know, I don't see it as, as challenging. I think that, you know, it, it's something where, um, you know, it is a project that thinks about sound in, in cities. And so, um, you know, I think that it is something that um, there, there's opportunities to think about sound in a different way. I think that, um, you know, the sound you do have, the thing I'm curious about is, is the sounds that you do notice, what do they mean? And how has sound changed in your in your town. Um, certainly you're not going to have as many um, different types of sounds, or you might have different sounds in cities that you don't necessarily have um, in more rural areas. But so far it's pretty similar. Um, I mean, you have a whole lot of traffic, um, more motorcycles <laughs> than, than in, in uh, city environments that I've, I've done work in. So um, I think it's just a different set of sounds. And I think that it is, um, there's been some really interesting dialogues around South River as a place. 
So I think that, you know, you, we all have sound where we live, like there's no escaping it. Um, and so whether you, whether you are mainly recording sounds of, you know, birds and crickets, um, and then suddenly in your data set, you have like, I don't know, construction noises because your closest neighbor, which is across a lake, so you can hear everything as clear as a bell, is building a cottage. Like there's there's all sorts of opportunity there. I think it's just something where in the city, sometimes what we run into is there's so much that it can feel hard to sort of sift through everything. So um, I think that there are more contrasts available in in rural areas. And yeah, I'm excited to see what happens when we do our sound walk later this week. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, and I, I think this was also uh, interesting for our New York listeners as well, as we kind of touched on that context as well. And then, and uh, those that are listening at, uh, in the vicinity of Wayfarm are also in a uh, similar kind of rural environment as well as our, our, as our own. So I think this is also applicable to our our U.S. listeners as much as no, to abs- our Canadian listeners. Absolutely, I remember. I remember when Way Farmed opened, and it seemed like a really interesting opportunity to create this workspace uh, north of New York. And so, yes, hello everyone in New York State. Uh, if you do download the three one one data set, um, give yourself some time because for some reason they're just making a gigantic data set and making it bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's almost at the point now where it's impossible to download. So um, <laughs> if you need to download that data, hit me up and I can give you a script that will help you just pull down the sounds. Uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks a lot for spending time with us and we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, see you very soon. Thanks, Darren. That was Jessica Thompson in conversation on Making Waves. Back in 2009, when NASA was based in Toronto, Jessica Thompson created a performance piece for the Deep Wireless Festival that was made in collaboration with Brandon LaBelle, Lisa Pogen-Namora, and Francois Girard. To conclude Making Ways for today, here is an excerpt of their performance, which was called Citizen Band.